Okay, today's discussion will be on the Dhamma Dayada Sutta. This is the third sutta in the Machimanitaya. The English meaning is heirs in Dhamma. This sutta was spoken by the Buddha while he was living in Jaipur Grove and Sabaki. And according to the commentary, there is a story which lies in the background of the sutta. In the very early period of the Buddha's mission, ministry, the monks would live very simple and austere lives because the Buddha himself, when he went forth seeking enlightenment, he adopted a strict ascetic regime and even though he abandoned this practice of self-mortification in order to adopt the middle way, but still in order to conform to the conventions of the ascetics of that period, he himself lived in ultimate simplicity and the early members of the Sangha also lived very simply. Generally, in the very early period, they didn't have big monasteries or even permanent residence, residences, but the monks would just wander about through most of the year, except during the rainy season, staying in the open air, living at the roots of trees, living in caves under overhanging rocks. They would get their food, almost exclusively by going on alms rounds, often in places where people didn't have any idea of who they were, what their purpose was, and they would make their robes themselves from pieces of discarded cloth and use the barks of trees and wood from trees for dye. And so the monks were living very austerely. But as time went on and Buddhism spread amongst a large part of the population in northern India and fixed monasteries were established and monks took up sometimes permanent residency in the monasteries. The Sangha came to be very highly respected and venerated by the large numbers of lay people who had embraced the Buddha's teaching as Upasakas and Upasakas as lay followers. And people would make offerings to the Sangha, very abundant offerings. Now the rule was made that the monks didn't have to wear only stitched robes stitched from pieces of cloth, but they could accept robes which were already nicely prepared by professional tailors, neatly stitched, beautifully dyed robes costly material. Now they were given, as I said, big monasteries with all of the comforts and necessities of life. They were, people would come to the monasteries bringing danas, or they would invite the monks to their homes for danas. And for the monks' refreshment, people would offer things like honey, molasses, soft drinks, fruit drinks. And so there was a tendency that for the monks to become lax, to become complacent, and to become attached to this fairly comfortable and enjoyable life. There would even be numbers of young people who were just not able to succeed in the worldly life and they saw that if they, since they couldn't make do with their material needs in the worldly life, if they were to ordain and enter the Sangha, then they get at least the basic necessities of life through the offerings of lay people. And so the Buddha realized that this was posing a danger to the future of the sasana. He thought that even those monks who took ordination with a quite earnest intention who were initially going forth in order to win the ultimate goal 
once they became habituated to this life of support, of veneration, of honor from the lay community, then they might just lose sight of their ultimate aim and settle into this comfortable routine. And so the Buddha delivered the sutta expressly for the purpose of setting up very clearly, unmistakably, unambiguously the ideal standard to which the monks should aspire. He wanted to make it clear to them that their purpose in going forth is not just to become enjoyers, users of material things, but to become Dhammadayana, to become heirs to the Buddha's own Dhamma. The commentary says that the Buddha taught this sutta as a kind of full-length mirror that the monks could use for self-examination. They say that just as you might, an ordinary person might have a full-length mirror, so if they are going out to some social function, they can look in the mirror, see whether they're dressed properly, whether the hair is neatly cut and combed, whether they've shaved everything properly, whether they look handsome, beautiful, <laughs> whether the women have put the makeup on all properly, <laughs> and so, and whether the ornaments and jewelry, everything is on in the proper place. In the same way, the Buddha sets up this, or speaks this Dhammadayada Sutta to give the Sangha a kind of mirror in which monks could examine themselves and see whether they're really properly fulfilling the practice and conduct of ascetics who have left the household life in order to win the ultimate goal, Nibbana. Okay, and so the Buddha begins the sutta by announcing to the monks, he says, Bhikkhus, be my heirs in Dhamma, not my heirs in material things. And here we have two expressions, two ideas, which are contrasted to each other. That is, being an heir in the Dhamma and being an heir in material things. And so the Buddha's, the Buddha's own property or legacy, we can say, is the Dhamma. The reason why he fulfilled the paramis or perfections as a bodhisattva over so many hundreds and thousands of lives was in order to awaken to the perfect Dhamma and then to confer that Dhamma upon the world so that others can follow that Dhamma and reach the final goal, reach Nirvana. And yet, as part of the heritage of the sasana, there also comes along this legacy, you can say, or inheritance of material things. Because the Buddha himself as the supreme teacher, a field, the supreme field of merit, receives abundant offerings, then those offerings which are given to the Buddha overflow, one can say, to the Sangha. And the Sangha in turn becomes the supreme field of merit or offering. And the Sangha receives many material offerings. And so the Buddha points out that there are these two types of legacies or inheritances which he makes accessible. And he contrasts the two and he urges the monks to pursue the first legacy, the legacy of Dhamma, not the legacy of material things. The commentary makes some interesting distinctions using Pali words, which I'll write on the board. The commentary says that the Dhamma legacy or Dhamma inheritance of the Buddha is twofold. 
forgive me for using these poly words, they're very simple once you understand them. Okay, one is called Nipariyayena. This is the ultimate, actual, real, definitive Dhamma which the Buddha passes on to the world. And the, this Dhamma legacy are the four transcendental paths, the paths of stream entry, once returning, non-returning, and arahanship. And the four fruits of those paths and Nibbana, Nibbana, the unconditioned, the deathless element, which is reached through the four paths and fruits. So what the Buddha is ultimately passing on as his legacy to the world are these nine Lokutara dharmas, these nine supramundane or transcendental states the four paths, their fruits, and Nibbāna. But in order to reap that ultimate or actual legacy, one has to take up the pariyāyena, dharma legacy. This is the, what you might call the expedient, the provisional, Dharma. And the, this provisional Dharma consists in the practices that one engages in in order to reach the supramundane stages of deliverance. In other words, when we take up the observance of precepts, when one gives dana when one observes the uposita observances, when one listens to sermons on the Dhamma, studies the Dhamma, does any kind of service to others, when one practices samatha meditation, vipassana meditation, with the aim of reaching the transcendental Dhamma, this is the provisional Dhamma legacy. And in order to reach the ultimate Dhamma, the final actual Dhamma, one has to begin with these basic practices of sila, samadhi, panya, and all of the other practices, giving dana, even performing pujas. Everything can become part of the equipment or means for reaching the ultimate Dhamma if one does it with a mind aimed at ultimate deliverance, dedicating this merit, dedicating the mental exertion to the goal of Nibbana. And so when even the quite ordinary person takes up these basic practices, even just observing precepts, doing a little bhavana, maybe half an hour, one hour a day, but doing so with the intention that these practices will be conducing to reaching the ultimate dhamma of the paths, fruits, and nibbana, then that person is in some way partaking of the Buddha's legacy of Dhamma. The legacy of material things, this is called Amisa Dayaja. Amisa means material things, carnal things. This also has the two divisions the ultimate or actual material things, those are the four requisites of, of life. Clothing or robes, food, a dwelling place, 
and medicinal requisites and refreshments. So one needs these four requisites, material requisites, in order to live. And so the Buddha didn't try to lay down rules for the Sangha saying you should go naked like the Jain ascetics or the Chalapan ascetics, but he allowed the monks, in fact he made it mandatory for them to use robes which will fully cover the body. He didn't say that you should live only in the forest taking fruits that fall from the trees or eating only what you get on alms round, but he allowed the monks to accept invitations to, to meals, to receive offerings of dana brought to the monastery, to partake even of quite delicious food. He didn't make it obligatory for the monks to live only in the open air without any shelter, but he allowed them to have temples, monasteries, cottages, sometimes even quite palatial dwelling places. Okay, so these are the four actual or ultimate requisites which everybody needs in order to live. But the Buddha again emphasized that the purpose in the monk's life is not to complacently enjoy these material supports, but merely to use them to keep the body in good health as a basis for striving for the spiritual goal. Okay, then the expedient was called the Pariyayena Amisa legacy. These are practices aimed at gaining a good rebirth, practicing offering dana, performing pujas, observing precepts, observing the uposita day, even doing meditation to reach the jhanas, but not with the aim of gaining nibbana through these practices. But the person undertakes these practices clinging to the punya, to the merit, in the hope that this merit will bring favorable rebirths in the human world and in the celestial planes. Okay, and so now the Buddha emphasizes to the monks that the purpose in leading this holy life, this brahmacharya, is to become an heir to the Dhamma, that is to undertake the expedient practices that will bring them to the ultimate legacy, the attainment of the paths, fruits, and nibbana. The idea of leading the holy life is not just to do good, meritorious works which will bring a favorable rebirth or to enjoy the material requisites of robes, alms, food, dwelling place, and refreshment. Okay, so all of this is implied in that statement with which the Buddha opens the sutta when he says, Be my heirs in Dhamma, not my heirs in material things. Then the Buddha gives the reason why he has, he's giving them such instruction. He says, out of compassion for you, I have this thought. How shall my disciples be heirs, my heirs in Dhamma, not my heirs in material things? And here he says that his motive in giving this instruction is compassion. Because he realizes as a Buddha that if the disciples become heirs in material things, just become attached to the comforts and luxuries of a well-established monk's life, then they will miss out 
on the supramundane dhamma, on the attainments which will lead to the highest state of realization, to full liberation from samsara. And if they become attached to material enjoyments, then the defilements will have an opportunity to overrun their minds. They'll just be caught up in attachment and clinging, and then they can be tempted to engage in unwholesome actions which will lead them to lower states of life. Again and again in the Sutta, the Buddha points out the dangers in attachment to gain, honor, and fame. In fact, there's a whole collection of short suttas in which the Buddha says that you should see all gain, honor, and fame as being dangerous, even fearful, and obstructive to liberation. Then he gives this comparison in some of these suttas. In one sutta, he says it's like a group of turtles who are living in a community and they know that there is a certain area in the sea where the turtle hunters go in order to catch the turtles. And they teach the young turtles when the young turtles are starting to, to grow up, they teach them, Deers, don't go into that part of the sea. For if you go into that part of the sea, it's very dangerous. That is where the hunters go, and they will shoot you and catch you, and then you are dead. And so most of the turtles <laughs> obey the advice of of the older turtles. But there was one turtle a little bit curious and he was wondering, oh, that water is just like this water. There couldn't be anything very dangerous in that part of the water. Let me just go and find out what's going on there. And so he swam over into that part of the water and then a turtle hunter in a boat above the water saw this little turtle swimming there and he took a harpoon and threw it and the harpoon struck the shell of the turtle, the little turtle. But the little turtle didn't feel it. <laughs> of course, it, was, it hit the shell, not the, the flesh. And so the little turtle then started swimming back to the adult turtles. And the adult turtle saw him coming with the harpoon stuck in his shell and the string leading up to the top of the water. And then they said to him, Where did you go? And he said, You told me about this piece, this section of the water that I shouldn't visit. And I was curious and I just wanted to see what was there. And I found that there's really, there's nothing to be afraid of there. There's nothing dangerous. I just have this problem that when I turn around, I see something like a, a string following me. Then the adult turtle said, Young one, you are caught. You have been shot. Now you are no longer one of us, but you now belong to the turtle hunter. And now the turtle hunter will do with you what he wants. In the same way, the Buddha says that when a monk becomes attached to Lava Sakara's Loka, that's gain honor and praise, then he is caught by Mara, trapped by Mara. He's fallen into the hands of Mara, and Mara can do with him what he wants. That's one way in which the Buddha emphasized the dangers in gain, honor, and praise. And there's another sutta in the same collection where the Buddha is sort of poking fun at the monk who's very proud of himself for getting many invitations to meals, to houses. He says that 
there's a kind of beetle that one sees, and I see them even in Uttawatha Kelly. It's called the dung beetle. It eats dung, it lives on dung, and you see it carrying and pushing little pellets of dung. And so the Buddha says that we might have a dung beetle, which is eaten, it's full of dung, it's filled with dung, and it's pushing a pellet of dung, and it's looking down at the other beetles and saying, these beetles haven't eaten their full of dung, they don't get a regular supply of dung, they don't have a big hoard of dung, but <coughs> I do. <laughs> so I am better than these other, other beetles. The Buddha said, like, this is just like a monk who is attached to gain, honor, and fame, and he goes from house to house getting invited to meals, and he goes about thinking, I am a meritorious monk. I am well endowed with merit. But, but these other monks who don't get the invitations, who don't get meals regularly, invited to meals regularly, those are of weak merit, of poor merit. And so the Buddha said, says that this monk is just like the dung beetle who's proud of his sash of dung. <laughs> Okay, so the Buddha repeatedly emphasized the adhinava, the danger in gain, honor, and fame, which comes about through being attached to material things. And now the Buddha gives a reason, another reason, why the monk should not be attached to material things. He says, if you are my heirs in material things, not my heirs in Dhamma, you will be reproached thus. The master, the sattā, the teachers, disciples, live as his heirs in material things, not as heirs in Dhamma. And I myself will be reproached thus. The teacher's disciples live as his heirs in material things, not as his heirs in Dhamma. In other words, if the monks are just concerned with their material well-being, then they will bring discredit upon themselves, because people will see them attached to material things, and they won't have any respect for the monks, and won't have any respect for the sasana, for the teaching. And also, the second reason is that people will also criticize the Buddha himself. So if the monks are to be really conscientious in wishing to preserve the good name of the Buddha, then they should be heirs in Dhamma, not heirs in material things. This is just like the case of children, young boys and girls, if people see young boys and girls who are poorly behaved, who don't have any consideration for others, who are very unruly in places where they should be quiet and restrained, who are very aggressive, say, in school, bully the other children, who are very greedy and impatient, who speak loudly in groups, then people don't blame only the children. Who else do they blame? The parents. They say, what kind of mother and father do these children have? They don't teach their children any manners. They don't teach them how to be courteous. They don't teach them any respect for others. Those parents themselves must be just like their children. They must be very unmannered, very unruly, very discourteous. And so if the parents don't discipline the children properly, then the children will not behave properly. And when people seeing children behaving discourteously, rudely, and impetuously, then they will blame the parents. 
In the same way, nowadays, when people see, if they see monks behaving improperly, then of course they don't blame the Buddha. The Buddha passed away 2,500 years ago, but they will blame the Nayakataros and the Mahataros, right? They say, why don't these Mahataras discipline the young monks properly? In the past, maybe if they're old people, we used to see the monks always were neatly shaved, always walked very quietly with their robes well, wearing the robes well. But now we see the monks going with the long hair, the robes half open, walking very noisily, chatting without any restraint, without any self-control, without any kind of inner quiet. So people form their impressions based on what they can see and observe. And so if people see the monks just in the Buddha's time indulging very um, luxuriously, indulging very complacently in material <coughs> things, then they would blame the Buddha. In fact, one has to say that because the Buddha taught a middle path, he was already subject to severe criticism from many of his contemporary spiritual teachings. Of course, generally, the other sects of the Buddha's time, the Jains, the Ajivakas, the naked ascetics, lived very rough, very austere lives because they believed that self-mortification and utter physical renunciation was the way to liberation. The Buddha realized that this was not the correct way, not the middle way to deliverance. And so he found a path of his own in which he made concessions to the physical needs of people. He allowed the monks to use full robes, to eat whatever alms would need for their health, to use dwelling places, and to take refreshments. But in order to uphold the good name of the teaching, to uphold his own reputation, he also had to make sure that the monks, in their conduct, in their manner, radiated a different kind of vibration than that of people who are self-indulgent, who live enjoying material things. And so what the Buddha wanted was the monks to devote themselves to the Dhamma so that they would show by their manner, by their behavior, that they had reached some state which was transcendent to the material things of the world even though they were making use of these things. Okay, so the next paragraph just states the positive side. If you are my heirs in Dhamma, not my heirs in material things, then you won't be reproached and I won't be reproached. Instead, people will praise the Sangha and they will praise myself, enlightened one, and they will praise the sasana, the teaching. Okay, now the Buddha gives an example to show the kind of attitude he wants his disciples to develop in making themselves heirs of the Dhamma. There's an example, I have to say it's a little hard to understand, but I think perhaps we have to view it against the background of the Buddha's own time. The Buddha takes the case where he himself is alone, we can suppose, and he has been offered a meal, an alms meal, and he is, it must have been quite a sumptuous meal, since he has eaten his own food, fulfilled his own needs, and there is alms food left over, which if nobody is to take it, would be thrown away. 
Okay, then two monks appear on the scene. Both are weak and hungry. Maybe they didn't eat all day. They didn't have anything in the morning. Maybe even they were traveling, so they didn't eat anything the previous day. And then they arrive on the scene, and it's still the forenoon, so there's no worry about taking food beyond the noon hour. And so the Buddha tells them, he says, I have eaten and taken what I need, and there is alms food left over, which would otherwise be thrown away. Eat it if you like. If not, then I shall throw it away, where there is no, no crops growing, or I will drop it into water. Okay, now the, of these two monks, one of them thinks, I'm hungry, and there is this alms food left over, and the Buddha has invited me to eat it. But the Buddha has also taught that we should be heirs, his heirs in material things, not his heirs. The Buddha has taught that we should be his heirs in the Dhamma, not his heirs in material things. And this alms food is a material thing. It's amisa. So if I were to take it and to eat it, then I would be an heir in material things. So, he thinks to himself, let me pass by this food, refuse to take it, and just endure my hunger and my weakness, and I will still devote myself, even though I'm hungry and weak, I will devote myself to the practice of the Dhamma. Okay, so this monk makes this decision and he politely rejects the Buddha's offer of the food, saying, I don't need it, Venerable Sir, I'm quite all right, <laughs> even though it's not quite true. Well, but he's going to practice this endurance to bear up his hunger realizing that the next day he will be able to go on alms round or receive some food offering and then he could still his hunger. But the other monk has the same realization that this food has been offered to me, given to me by the Buddha and I'm hungry and weak But he thinks to himself, let me eat this alms food, then I will put an end to my hunger, regain my strength, and then I will pass the day, the rest of the day, engaged in practicing the Dhamma. Okay, the second monk is not a docile monk, not a bad, immoral monk. This food has been given to him by the Buddha, and it's within the right time and the food is otherwise it would be thrown away and yet he accepts the food, eats it and then devotes himself to the practice. Now the Buddha says, although that monk by eating that alms food passed the night and day neither hungry nor weak, yet the first bhikkhu is more to be respected and commended by me. That is, the Buddha prefers the monk who foregoes the meal, enduring his hunger, in order not to partake of some amisa item left by the Buddha. It seems like a rather strong, I have to say, maybe if I were in the position, <laughs> I would take this food. <laughs> Excuse me? I also. <laughs> it depends on how weak and hungry I was. But anyway, the Buddha is setting up a certain ideal here, 
And we have to remember that the Buddha doesn't praise extreme asceticism. But this is, I think, establishing the kind of ideal that the monks should aspire to, even if they can't follow. And notice the Buddha doesn't say that the second monk should be criticized, should be rejected, should be blamed. Both are good monks, but the Buddha says the first monk is more respected and more commended by me. And why is this? Here he gives a reason. Because that decision of his will for long conduce to his funeral of wishes, contentment, effacement, easy support, and arousal of energy. Therefore, monks, be my heirs in, the, in Dhamma, not my heirs in material things. Out of compassion for you, I have, I have thought, how shall my disciples be my heirs in Dhamma, not my heirs in material things? Excuse me? The first month, yeah. by restraining, uh, is gaining honor. Yeah. Because he is a more respected one. Yeah. But that's not. He's gaining honor. So he's getting more honor. No, but that's, first of all, um, it's not his intention in any way. That's not the purpose for which he's doing it. And also, he's being, the Buddha is saying that he, is, that he himself is honoring and commending this monk. It's not like he's winning honor and fame and reputation from other people so that they will make more offerings to him. But the important thing is that it's not his motivation. <laughs> okay, here the Buddha mentions five important qualities which are, you might say, important aspects, different aspects of the life of renunciation. I will write these on the board in Pali, since they're very basic virtues of monastic life. Okay, the qualities first of fewness of wishes, a pichata. I think in singular you have to use a sense. Alpechata, do you have that expression? Alpecha, alpecha. It's the same thing in Pali, a picha. In the abstract, apichatna, fewness of wishes. That means not desiring many things, not desiring high quality things, beautiful things, lovely things, refined things, but just being, needing just the basic things, being very frugal, we can say. And that's closely aligned with the second virtue, santuti, which is contentment. Being contentment, being contented with whatever one gets. Being contented with simple robes, with the monks, simple alms food, simple dwelling place, simple refreshments. And then we could jump to quality number four, which is almost very closely related, is subharata, which means bara is a burden. And subhara means being, literally it's a good burden, but it means not being a burden on others. It means one doesn't make demands of others, doesn't impose on them, saying, I need this, I want that, please give this, please give that. But since one has few wishes and is content, then when the monk is being supported by lay people, then he is able to settle for whatever they offer and not burden them with requests for this or that special, special item. Okay, and these three qualities, one, two, and four, are aspects of sila, of good behavior. 
but they represent a kind of internalization of sila where the sila is beginning to impact on the mind so that now it's the mind governed by this restraint which is being cleansed of excess of desire abundance of desire being cleansed of discontent of being unhappy, dissatisfied with what one has and the mind is being cleansed of this demandingness which makes the person a burden on others okay the quality listed here in Pali is called salaika effacement or erasing that's what it means literally it's erasing removing defilements from the mind in sutta number 8 of the Majjhimunikaya the Buddha deals in great detail with this topic of qualities which are to be removed, erased by 44 opposite wholesome or virtuous qualities and so in this case with this monk who bears the hunger we could say he is removing the quality of say impatience the quality of being discontent with his situation learning to develop patience the ability to endure hardship and then it conduces to five the arousing of energy um, of course since he doesn't have food he'll be physically weak but he'll be stirring up his mind to bear this hardship arousing his energy so that he can endure it without falling into self-pity, discontent, inner complaints mental commentary but he just recognizes okay I missed my meal for today and he applies himself to the monk's practice to the meditation practice even though he might not be able to make his firm progress because his body is weak as he would if he had a meal but this will help in the task of removing craving from the mind since if he's able to endure one day without food then he can endure, endure other situations which will also be difficult it is also for these same, in order to develop these same five qualities that the Buddha recommended ascetic practices but maybe as time is running out I won't deal with those now, but I will deal with those maybe next week. Okay, maybe we will stop the discussion here now, and then if there is any questions, any comments, please feel welcome to me. Particularly, I'm interested to know what you think about this comparison of the two monks that's given. Do you have any comments? I would say that is a typical case where we have to judge it by case by case. In other words, in that particular situation, this particular judgment is correct. But when, when the monk is handicapped, with his, uh, his mind is impaired by lack of food, it is definitely not the Buddha's teaching. And I believe that this comparison between these two monks is far more a metaphor and a kind of uh, picture which shows the importance of viryaparami, of the, of the perfection of the virya, 
and Kanti are thinking, patient. Yeah, patient, yeah, patient. And, uh, the other monk has missed that point, maybe, but one cannot blame him. Because, and only a Buddha can make the distinction between these two monks, if which one is in this particular moment the cleverer one. Because it could be, it could, the judgment could be opposite if the situation would be different. You know? So therefore it is a very difficult thing which we have to elaborate deeply you know, and see that we find other sources of the Buddha Dharma which puts these uh, contradictory eventing in the sort uh, out, the contradiction out. It's just that uh, the Venerable said that uh, it, it's a metaphor. Yeah, no, no. um, there's a certain illogic in the story itself because um, the, Buddha, the Buddha has allowed um, food yeah. as one of the five requisites. Yeah. And uh, if the time is valid, it's before the yeah, moon, yeah. and these monks are actually weak. Yeah, yeah. They need to yeah, yeah. So it isn't logical that um, they, they should be expected to refuse them. Yeah. So like the next day, yeah. they might as well refuse food again. No. Why they should refuse yeah. food the next day. And the situation is a very valid si- yeah. situation. Um, but the, the monk that refused the food, uh, he had the thought in his mind, yeah. which was exactly identical with what the Buddha is teaching at this particular yeah, moment. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 te- the, uh, the teacher is our air, um, we are air teachers, dharma, yeah, yeah. non-material things. Yeah, yeah. So in, in a way it's a kind of a, a caricature, a yeah, symbolic yeah, story. Yeah. Not, a, not a, a real situation. It's just to em- emphasize the point that, uh, that the monk here shows uh, endurance. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so that he will, he will, is uh, more inclined towards dharma yeah. uh, than yeah. material yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not to be taken literally, yeah. yeah. but just as yeah. an em- emphasis on yeah. this quality of endurance. Yeah. Yeah. It seems the first monk <laughs> is taking the Buddha's words very literally, since the Buddha says, "Be an heir of dharma, don't be an heir of material things." And of course, by this, the Buddha means that the monks shouldn't be attached to material things. Not that they shouldn't make use of the basic material things, robes, dwelling, and so on. But the first monk is taken at very literally, okay, the food is a material thing, Amisa. The Buddha is giving me his leftover food. I should reject this because this is a material thing coming from the Buddha. But anyway, here the Buddha is setting up a kind of deal showing that the monk should really be devoted primarily to Dhamma and just make the material things a foundation or basis for pursuing the Dhamma. Exactly, that's the good example. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, 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 yeah, yeah. That's the famous story. That's the famous story, yeah, 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 that one can teach the Dhamma to a hungry man. When the Buddha was preaching one time, there was a cow, cowherd who came late and he missed his noon meal. And so the Buddha asked the monks to give him the leftover food. And then after the cowherd ate, then the Buddha gave the sermon. Maybe that, that story counterbalances this example. A far reaching consequences of these.
Because just to pass one day without taking the meal is not going to debilitate the body so much. That is where the case to case comes into play, no? It depends on the. Any further questions? Can we have any idea when this the idea that one wants to gain deliverance from from the round of existence and so <laughs> one practices with that intention in mind one knows what Nibbana is not <laughs> in other words the aim of practice it's to reach to fulfill the goal of the teaching the ultimate goal the contrast is between one who practices the practices that they undertake are the same, or at least to a large extent of the way they are the same. But the one person is practicing with the aim of reaching, maybe he doesn't know 100% exactly what enlightenment is, what Nibbana is, but he knows that the Buddha has taught this is the goal, Nibbana, the destruction of greed, hatred, delusion, liberation from suffering, the highest happiness and peace, the end of the round of rebirths. And so with that idea in mind, one practices, the un- one engages in these practices. Another person maybe hears about Nibbana, Arahanship, Enlightenment, but he's not really so interested or keen on that. But he believes principles of karma and rebirth, and engages in these practices with the intention of reaping a favorable rebirth. But now the person who engages in the practices aiming at Nibbana is still generating merit which will conduce to a favorable rebirth. So that person doesn't really have to worry so much about (laughs) the mode that rebirth will take. He doesn't have to become afraid, well if I'm aiming at Nibbana, I'm going to miss the opportunity to get (laughs) a human rebirth or a celestial rebirth, maybe I'll be reborn as an animal or a hungry ghost. No, the person will also be generating even more merit, but the merit will be, it will produce its mundane fruits, a favorable rebirth, good and under good conditions, but it will also have a direction beyond a favorable mode of rebirth, pointing towards the ultimate, towards Nibbana. Yeah, that is, I mean, one has to assume that 
the monk is just going to bear this hunger for one day and night that not um, the next day he will be quite sure of having his meal okay I think we'll have to stop now and then continue finish this is the next week thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate